You're listening to the Sermon Podcast for the Gate Church in Lethbridge, Alberta. For more information, to contact us, or to support this ministry, please visit thegate.org. Um, today, we're, we're going to be picking, off, picking up from where we left off last week in the Gospel of Luke. And we're going to be reading from chapter 18, starting at verses 18. So if you have your Bibles with you, I would encourage you to open them up and turn with me to Luke 18, 18. And we'll be reading to verse 30. Um, And we're going to be reading all about an encounter that Jesus has with this rich guy who, who asks him what is arguably one of the most important questions in the history of mankind. And we're going to be going through that this morning. So Luke 18, 18 to 30. says this, and a ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, all these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. And Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And those who heard it said, then who can be saved? But he said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said, see, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come, eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. Well, this conversation, or conversation, I'm told I use a Z there instead of an S, this conversation actually starts out pretty well, doesn't it? In here, right? The the rich ruler approaches the only person who can rightly answer his question. He comes to Jesus, the source of eternal life, and asks, how do I inherit eternal life? So things are looking pretty good at the start. The only problem is he doesn't like Jesus' answer. And that's when things go sideways really fast. And this ladies and gentlemen, I'd, I'd, I'd argue is also the root cause of the atheist dilemma which we're seeing, or even the rise of deconstructionism, which is deconstructing one's faith. Um, the root cause of these things is that these people don't like the answer to the question. Because for them, wh- whether it's true or not isn't the issue, even though they'll, they'll say it is, Right? But deep down, the issue for them is that it's not true for their lifestyle or their way of thinking. 
It doesn't fit in with their personally defined morals and values, their subjective intellect, or their desires of the flesh. They don't like the answer to the question because it doesn't fit in their mold. And so like the rich ruler, they walk away sad. And, and not sad that they've denied Jesus per se, which we know is actually the sad part, but they're sad that Jesus didn't answer their questions in the way that they wanted him to. Sad that Jesus didn't confirm their personal ideals and supposed goodness, but actually challenges them and subverts them. And sad that he doesn't bend and adjust his nature in order to fit into their self-centered mold, right? So, so like them, the, the rich ruler here is feeling all of that. We can read that he walks away sad because he doesn't like the answer that he's given which was that in order to inherit eternal life, he had to give up his wealth and follow Jesus alone. He didn't like that one bit. More specifically, he didn't like the fact that Jesus broke down the self-righteous confidence he had had when he first approached Jesus because he thought he was following all the commandments. I'm sure he also didn't like the fact that Jesus magnified his lingering sins of covetousness and idolatry, which were still in his heart, which Jesus did through just simply asking him to give away his wealth to the poor. And it seems he didn't like the idea that he had to follow and trust in Jesus as good, as the Son of God, as his Lord and Savior, instead of in himself and in his wealth. Because his wealth, of course, represented more than just the size of his bank account here. Wealth in itself is not a sin. We can, we can be wealthy. But wealth for this guy had obviously become an idol, something he coveted, something he trusted in over and above God, which means it would have also represented for him or, or epitomized his social status, his security and his well-being, his religious pride and proof of his success and goodness, would have represented his lifestyle and his identity, it was all-consuming for him, right? So from our perspective, we, we, we can see, right, from our perspective that Jesus is really only revealing the sin in this rich ruler's heart because it's, this is what's keeping him from actually following God and having eternal life. He's showing the, the, this ruler that his problem is that the Lord is not currently, his Lord is not cur currently the Lord, right? Meaning he would have to make a choice here between idols or God, between the world and all its fleeting pleasures, or eternal life, which is, as Jesus tell, tells us in John 17, which is to know God and his Son whom he has sent. Right? True life is to be in an eternal relationship with the Lord. But that's the point. In order to know and be in relationship with God, who is holy and without sin, we must also then be made holy and set apart for him alone as well. Jesus implies this right off the bat when he questions the man's greeting, asking him, why do you call me good when no one is good except God alone? To be clear, Jesus isn't denying his divinity here. He's, he's hinting at it. He's implying it. Well, at the same time, he's also hinting at the fact that while this man figured he was also good enough to get to God on his own, he's not. He can't be. No one is good except God. 
In fact, the law of Moses, which this rich ruler is so confident in, actually shows us that we're not good enough, right? Which is why Jesus actually quotes the law to him and challenges him to uphold it fully, because he finds out that he actually can't. The rich ruler thought the law was going to save him, but in the end he found out that it was only showing him that he was falling short, that he wasn't as good as he figured he was. Um, I, I was watching an interview with, uh, with a celebrity the other day. It was, it was some, someone who was interviewing Martha Stewart. And, and she was asked, where do you think people go when they die? And she answered, we go to heaven. And then she clarified, and she's like, well, all good people go to heaven. And th this is a common way of thinking, right? But first of all, whose definition of good are we talking about here? And, and secondly, li like the rich ruler, she certainly means to include herself on that list, right? So, so that list isn't, isn't very objective, or the standard isn't very objective. But yet, according to Jesus, her standard doesn't matter. According to Jesus, no one is on that list. Right? That's hard to admit, but he says, no one is good except God alone. We all fall short of his glory, as it says in Romans 3. None of us can measure up. Only God is good, so therefore only God can make us good. Thankfully, Jesus came to accomplish that feat for us when he came to us to be God with us, as it also says in Romans 3. I'll just sum that up. Cliff's, cliff notes here. It, Romans 3 tells us that Jesus was God made manifest among us so that we could be justified and made righteous through him. What that means is he was perfectly good for us. He was good where we couldn't be. And then by his grace, he pours that goodness upon us in exchange for the weight of our sins, which he then humbly took upon himself at the cross. He exchanges that. Our sin and death was put to death by his death and resurrection, which is why he alone is now Lord and King who sits at the right hand of God with all authority over the living and the dead. And that's also why when we now lay down our, our sinful lives before him, he's ready to forgive us of our sin and is then able to raise us up into resurrection life with him, into eternal life with God, which is sealed in us by his spirit. Romans 6, 5 to 11 says, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, right, our sins are put to death, then we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So that's, that's why Jesus is calling this man to lay down his life and follow him. Not because he's being punished for being rich. Not because Jesus wants to simply challenge him to do something good for a change and earn his own way into heaven. 
but because we can't truly follow or be set apart for eternal life with God if we're still carrying our sins and our idols around with us. Our old sinful self needs to be put to death so that we can be made alive in Christ. And, and this is a call we're all required to answer. Matthew 16, 24. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will, profit, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels and the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. And truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. So back to the rich ruler then. That Jesus knew that this rich ruler thought he could save him, his own life through obedience to the law, but yet he was only deceiving himself and actually losing it. Instead, Jesus says, follow me. He also knew that this man had gained the world, but yet was losing his soul. So Jesus says, get rid of your wealth, your idols. Get rid of your wealth by giving it to those who need it so you can have treasure in heaven. Though the problem with wealth and riches, which we've already gone over a couple of times in this series, since Luke talks about it a lot, is that it gives us the, that false sense of, of self-confidence, of, of the, the false sense of security and identity. And it even, even convinces us that it must mean we're close to God or at least really blessed by God or, or on God's good side if we have it. But the irony is that when we trust in it or, or covet it when we don't have it, we actually grow further away from, from trusting in God and more often than not, like the Israelites before us, we forget that we need him. We, we forget that all we have was from him and for him anyway. Which is why as the man walks away sad, Jesus says from Luke 16, 24, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom. So again, this, this man was speaking with Jesus. He was talking to the manifest living God, who is the way, the truth, and the life, the only one who is good, as Jesus himself implied. And, and, and he gets the answer to the most important question in the universe, but yet he walks away sad because he finds out, that he couldn't have both the world and the kingdom. He's sad because he couldn't give up his pride or his wealth, which had blinded him from the truth. But it's worse than, that, worse than, than, than what we're seeing here, because while he thinks that in choosing his stuff, he's simply choosing a life of ease and riches over a life of piety, we know that 
deep down, eternally speaking, spiritually speaking, he's actually choosing to continue down a path of destruction, which inevitably leads to death and subsequently to hell. Which happens to be the opposite of where he wanted to end up. And so this is serious business here. He's chosen an investment upon which he hasn't paid any attention to the fine print. His will run out. The one Jesus offered him grows into eternity. And this rich man's story actually brings to mind a parable which Jesus had already told previously from Luke 16, as if he knew he was going to have this conversation with this guy. Here's the parable from Luke 16, 19 to 31. Jesus says, There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and had fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things. And Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses, and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, if they see a miracle, then they will repent. And he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. The rich man in this parable chose his money and his stuff over helping Lazarus, right? That poor guy outside his gate. He chose his money and his stuff. He chose to live his best life now at the cost of living in eternity with God. In other words, all his greed and, and idolatry of riches and all his status, all that got him in the end was a room in Hades. And while this parable is exactly that, a parable, which means this probably isn't a completely accurate description of what hell will be like. I don't know if we'll be able to, they'll be able to talk to people in heaven or whatever. But the, the main point remains, money can't save you. Money and status don't come with you when you die. And the idolatry of it, or anything else in the world really, will only pay for your ticket to a very real hell of your choosing. And whatever misery awaits us there. Though the issue is, as Abraham notes in the parable, is that the world and our idols, especially wealth, 
can have such a grip on us, right? Such a grip on us that not even miracles, like seeing people come back from the dead, will convince us to turn away from them. We all heard people say, well, if God would just show me a sign, then I'd believe in him. And we're looking at their life and we're like, you are, you are blessed. There's so many signs in your life that God is working in you. You're ignoring them all because you just don't want to see it. Because you're, you're looking at something else. Right? But yet it also says we are without excuse. We've been given God's word. The law and the prophets. Moses and the prophets. We've been given the truth. We've been told what it takes to enter the kingdom. And in the same vein, we've also been warned in the word that to choose the world is to choose enmity with God, which again is to choose hell. And if the rich young ruler truly recognized that, would he have chosen his stuff? Would, would, would he have chosen his idols over Jesus? Maybe not. But the truth is that ultimately no one is saved by simply being threatened or being scared out of hell. Right? Ultimately, we're saved by grace. God's kindness is what leads us to repentance. But yet, maybe the real, realization that, 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 that he was already heading there on his own due to his pride and idolatry against God, maybe that would have caused him to recognize his need for a Savior. Maybe, maybe it would have helped him see that Jesus was there to save him from destruction. And not, and not to just simply take away his money and his lifestyle. Right? In fact, Jesus wasn't even there to take, take away anything that actually mattered. He actually promises that, 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 that if he gives his worldly wealth away, he'd be given treasure in heaven instead for eternity. But he didn't believe it. And he chooses the wrong eternity. And all this talk about hell sounds harsh. And hell is harsh. But it's also just. And again, that's why Jesus came to us and why he died on the cross for us. He came to rescue us from our sins, which lead us into hell. Right? In love, God sent his son, Jesus, to save us from, from the death and destruction we were already heading towards by our own volition. So in response to the disciples' question, then who can be saved? Right? Which is a poignant question after they saw this rich man walk away from Jesus in sadness, especially because in those days Jews often, often viewed the rich as being blessed by God. And so they're in shock and, and dismay here. If this rich man can't get, get in, and then, then we have no hope, they're thinking. But in response to their question, Jesus proclaims, what is impossible with man is possible with God. What is impossible with man is possible with God. And so, no, we can't save ourselves. It's, it's impossible. We can't loose the chains of sin and idolatry which bind us. We can't atone for our own sin or try to tip the balance of the scale by doing good works and keeping the commandments. But Jesus makes it all possible. Through Jesus, we can be saved. Through Jesus, we can be freed from, from our sin and loosed from the chains of idolatry. Through Jesus, we can be made good in God's sight. Through Jesus, eternal life in the kingdom of God is possible. And no one is beyond it, no matter how impossible it might look. John 3.16, all the way to 18. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. 
Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So this is God's love for us, right? His, his desire for us is that we don't perish in our sin, that we don't continue on the path of condemnation we're already headed on, but that we would be taken off that path and placed onto the path of his making, the short and narrow one, the one that leads to forgiveness and eternal life. And all that's required of us is that we believe and follow after Jesus Christ, for he is the way, the truth, and the life. And we believe that so strongly, that's why we have the evangelism team, right? That's why we're, we're plugging into missions, because we believe that. We want people to know this. But as theologian Timothy Keller also reminds us, Jesus cannot be just liked. His claims make us either kill him or crown him which means that we can't just call Jesus a good teacher like the rich ruler did and then learn a few things from him on how to, how to live a better life and how to apply some stuff to our lives and then be on our merry way. No, he's not a life coach. He is life. And so we either surrender and believe in him and then continue to grow in both our, our ability and desire to follow him completely by the power of his spirit or we reject him in favor of the world. Because as we've also learned from earlier in Luke, we can't serve both the world and Jesus. It's, it's one or the other. We'll, we'll either hate one and love the other or be devoted to one and despise the other. We can't serve two masters, as Jesus tells us. So here's the question. Who is your master? Who are you following after? Because while this man was serving wealth, and, and it's what he chose to continue serving, I also know that wealth might not be the idol that you're serving or coveting in or trusting in, though it very well might be, because in our culture it's highly possible. But if it's not, maybe it's an addiction. Maybe it's entertainment or, or, or your phone or your identity as a mother or father. Or maybe it's your career or your social media status <clears throat> or your self-righteousness. Like Martha Stewart, you think you're, you're good on your own. You trust in that. Or maybe it's your selfishness. You don't care about anyone else but yourself. Or it's your, your looks or your fear of man or, your, or politics or your possessions, or something else. Only God knows what's in your heart. Just like how he knew intimately and personally what was in the rich man's heart that needed to be dealt with. And so again, the, the question and warning for all of us as we look at this rich man's story is who are we truly worshiping? Who are we truly following? And more specifically, what is Jesus asking us to lay down at the cross so that we can follow him completely? Tabitiania Buile writes of the rich ruler, he kept what he had, losing nothing, but he goes away sad. 
This man's reaction dramatizes the life choice of so many people today who look at their possessions, look at Jesus, and choose their possessions. They walk away with an inexplicable sadness. Their possessions do not satisfy them anymore, but they, but they cannot let them go, which is how we know their possessions have become idols. They are sad with it, but they must have it. So many people waste away like Gollum from Lord of the Rings, stroking their precious and dying from it. If you try to save your life, you will lose it. If the Holy Spirit is bringing conviction to your heart this morning, but your response is, no, Lord, (laughs) I need that. I want that. I'll follow you, but just don't take that away from me. And chances are you're being short-sighted. You're being short-sighted. The rich ruler comes to Jesus and he asks about eternal life. But what we can surmise from from what, what happens is that he only cared about his present life. He asked about eternal life, but he only cared about his present life. He didn't realize that to lay down everything he had was really Jesus' way of calling him to make a deposit on something greater and better and eternal. He also didn't recognize that you don't need earthly riches in eternity. And you can't take them with you anyways. You don't need your possessions in eternity. You don't need earthly pleasures in eternity. You don't need your sports car or your cigarettes or your social status or your boat in the kingdom of God. Compared to what we get in the kingdom, those things are nothing. Lay them down. Why do we hold on to these things so tightly? Why would we choose to trust and lean on them over what truly matters and what's truly good. If we are choosing these things over God, we're believing in a lie. Instead, Jesus is calling us to invest in the kingdom, to lay those idols down so that we can build up our treasure in heaven. Treasures which don't get rusty or eaten by moths or blown up in a war or become obsolete like our stupid phones. Bottom line, when Jesus calls us to sacrifice or surrender something in our lives, it's not because he wants to torture us or make our lives miserable or or boring. It's actually the complete opposite. It's because he's rescuing us from those things and teaching us to trust in him alone and for something better. Surprisingly enough, and what what can be considered a, a miracle of highest proportions at this point, the Apostle Peter seems to get it. He usually doesn't. In this moment, he gets it. And he responds to Jesus saying, we've sacrificed and given up things to follow you. We've given up our homes, which is to say they've given up their jobs and their families, right? Their previous life. And to this, Jesus says from verses 29 to 30, And he said to them, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. 
protects his promise. In other words, laying down your life to follow Jesus is worth it. Many times over. It's worth it. As Tabitiania Wheelie again writes, a healthy sense of self-interest and a healthy desire for sustained pleasure ought to lead every person to trade this world for the eternal world to come. Christ will certainly make demands on our lives. He will demand our entire lives. He will rearrange our lives. He will remove us from relationships and circumstances that we love but that are not pleasing to him. He will cause us to make stands even against our loved ones where he is concerned. He will cause us to make stands that may cost us greatly like our spiritual brethren in Muslim and Hindu lands who lost their families, homes, and churches in persecution. He will call us to do all of these costly things, but he will reward us with an everlasting kingdom and eternal life. So as we consider then what Jesus is calling us to lay aside and lay down at the foot of the cross, let us now consider the fact that Jesus has already done this for us. 1 John 3.16 By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Jesus, God's love for us, laid down his life. He took up the cross for us. And so when Jesus is asking us to lay down our lives and pick up our cross, he's only asking us to join him in what he already accomplished and made possible for us in his own death and resurrection. Mm-hmm.